Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you today. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, glad to see all of you. Glad to, uh, to worship together with you today. And uh, thank you, John, for being with us. Um, you know, I've, wh- one of the things that sort of triggered um, John being here today was whenever the tornado went through, is it Marysville, Kentucky? Is that the name of the town? Mayfield. Mayfield, Kentucky. Okay, different town. Mayfield, Kentucky. Um, big time, big time problem. It's going to take years to clean up. Um, I remembered whenever uh, I first went through training and um, a commissioning with uh, Southern Baptist to plant a church here. Um, that one of the things that we were exposed to was disaster relief. And the thing that stood out to me about disaster relief is that of all the things that Southern Baptists are involved in around the world, uh, disaster relief is top-notch. Um, so we're talking about you see the yellow shirts, then you know that experts are on the scene because they do it really well. Um, and so we thought this would be a good thing to be involved in, and hopefully this can be something that we can um, be regularly involved with. So thank you for being here with us today. Um, well, we're doing a series in the Gospel of Luke, and today we're in Luke chapter 4. So this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we've been, so far, we went through the birth and infancy part of the Gospel of Luke, the ministry of John the Baptist, or JTV, as Eric Tuffensham called him. Um, last week, we looked, we looked at Jesus being tempted uh, by Satan in the wilderness, and now we've come to um, sort of Jesus' introduction uh, to uh, to, uh, he's introducing himself uh, to the people that he's ministering to. And so this is his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke. And this is where Jesus uh, states his ministry priorities and objectives. So what we're going to see is that in a subtle way, Jesus is announcing that he's the Messiah. But he's not the Messiah that everyone expected. And he was not the Messiah that these people wanted. So whenever it dawns on everybody that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they were hoping for, they turned on him and they rejected him. But once they understood what he was really about, I mean, they, they actually wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. So that's the story we're going to hear today. So let's dig in. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, if you have a Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 4, and we'll, we'll uh, listen to this story from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So I want to pick it up here in verse 14 and 15. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus' ministry base was Capernaum. Um, That's where he operated most of the time. And so this text is telling us here that Jesus had already been ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in his ministry, it got people talking. Jesus attracted attention. And by this time of where we are now, Jesus had established himself as a bona fide rabbi. So he'd been teaching in various synagogues around the countryside. Okay, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, where, or he unrolled the scroll 
and found the place where it was written. Now, hold on here. We, we'll get to the, what he, what he read here in just a second. So it says he came to Nazareth. This is his hometown. So this is the place where he grew up. From a little boy, he grew up throughout his whole life. And people there knew him. They knew his parents. They knew his family. And he arrives here at the synagogue. So the synagogue is, uh, it's not the temple, but it's a, it's a place uh, of gathering for Jewish people uh, you know, all around the area. So he probably had a lot of childhood friends here, you know, people that were um, former teachers, family members, things like this. These are the sort of people that would have been gathered here in the synagogue. Now, typically, a, a synagogue service consisted of six elements, and I'll just give you these real quick. There was a, they would sing a hymn, they would read the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6, Hero, uh, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and so on. So it's, they would read the Shema, they would have a reading from the Old Testament law, They'd have a reading from one of the prophets. There would be a sermon, and then there would be a, a closing blessing by the synagogue ruler. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is, because our modern church services and church services have always been built on this synagogue model where um, you, you hear the scriptures and somebody preaches, you sing a hymn, and there's like a benediction. You know, the basic elements are still in our worship services today. So Jesus is handed a scroll and that, this is at the part of the service where there's a reading from one of the Old Testament prophets. So he's handed a scroll, and he's going to read from one of the prophets, and then he looks until he finds a particular text that he's looking for, and the text that he lands on, that he chose, is Isaiah 61. Now this is significant. Jesus chose this text, and the text that he reads, Isaiah 61, it's an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. The word Messiah, that, that's a Hebrew word, and it simply means anointed one. So uh, the anointed one is basically, um, generally speaking, it could be somebody assigned by God for a special task. So typically it would be a king or some kind of a ruler. But the, the Old Testament did prophesy that God would someday send the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. And this man would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to redeem God's people. So that's what they were expecting. Now, you translate the Hebrew word Messiah into Greek, and that word is Christos, from which we get the word Christ. So Christ, in case you didn't know, that's not Jesus' last name. You know, it's not like, you know, Joseph Christ married Mary Christ. Well, she's married Jones before, but she changed her name to Mary Christ. And then they had the little boy, Jesus Christ. That's not the way it was, okay? So Christ is a title. It is, it, is, it is an office that Jesus holds. So basically what's happening here is that Jesus is that Messiah. He is the anointed one, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was sent by God to accomplish something of, uh, of divine, uh, divine power. So Isaiah 61 that we're about to read in a second, Isaiah 61 is, is like a messianic mission statement. It's a statement of what the Messiah will do whenever he comes. It's a statement of the Messiah's ministry priorities and objectives. And the book of Isaiah that Jesus is about to read from was written about 700 years prior. So this is, they'd been waiting. This was a, a familiar text to people. And they'd been waiting for the Messiah to come for 700 years. So they would have been familiar with this. Now let's read, and the next two verses are a quotation that Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. So verse 18 here, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 61, you would have missed something. Jesus stopped reading in the middle of the text. Jesus didn't read the whole prophecy from Isaiah 61. He read part of it, but he stopped in the middle of the passage. Now, why would he do that? He did it, it was for one simple reason. The Messiah's ministry would ultimately be fulfilled in two stages, right? There is the first coming, and then there's the second coming. So Jesus only quotes in this text the part of the prophecy that refers to his earthly ministry, the first coming of Christ. So he, would not, he did not read the parts of the text that would refer to the second coming of Christ. Now, I want, to show, I want you to see this. So what we're going to do is put, put your finger in this text and then turn over to Isaiah 61. I don't know why I said it that way because nobody uses a paper Bible. Or anybody use a paper? Oh, we've got a few up here. Way to go, fellas. Uh, but if you've got a paper Bible, you can put your finger in Luke 4 and then turn with me over to Isaiah 61 because I want you to see the whole text that... Uh, that Jesus is reading from. So now we're back in the Old Testament, 700 years prior. This is the text that Jesus is reading from. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and it keeps going, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend to your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. That's the whole text. And they would have known that. And so Jesus walks in, and he's reading from the prophecy, and he reads half of it, and he stops in the middle, and they're like, wait a minute, Jesus, you didn't finish the rest of it. So there's a lot of stuff in those seven verses that I just now read to you that refer to the totality of the Messiah's ministry. Some of those things are things that will only take place at the second coming of Christ, when he returns. But that's not where we're at right now. We're at the first coming right now. So, of course, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows he's consciously aware of what his ministry is like. And so he knows that he's going to come twice, once as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the suffering Lamb. And he's going to come a second time as the roaring lion of Judah that's treading out the, uh, 
you know, the, 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 the blood of his enemies and getting vengeance. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible, wrathful picture of what will happen when Jesus returns the second time. So at this first coming, which is where we are now, Jesus suffers. He's the suffering servant, and that's all over the book of Isaiah. He suffers for our sins. He dies on the cross, and he rises again, and he is, this brings in the year of the Lord's favor. So after the first coming of Christ, we have this age of the Messiah, which we're living in now. It's a season of grace where Jesus uh, calls people to repent and to believe the gospel and to find a life and hope in Christ. At the second coming, which will be whenever Christ returns, Jesus will bring this world to an end. He will bring God's final wrath and judgment against sin, and that is the day of vengeance of our God, which we, that's the very next line after the one where Jesus stopped. That's the eternal state. It's the day of the Lord. It's judgment day. And whenever judgment day happens, that's when everything wrong is put back in order. That's what judgment means. It is, it is to put things back where they belong, to repair what is broken. So when Christ returns, all evangelism will end. God's people will enter into eternal glory, and God's enemies will enter into eternal torment. So Jesus only reads the parts of the text that he came to fulfill this time. At this in his earthly ministry and not at the second coming. And now this brings us to a problem, and I, we need to take a few minutes to talk about this. Some people want all the benefits now, right? When all the, all, all the things where, where uh, all the fulfillment and all the good things that will someday happen, we want all of it now, and we don't want to wait until the, the second coming. So when all the benefits of the second coming to happen at the first coming, now, some Christians will misunderstand the text of Luke 4. We can go back to Luke 4 now. Some people will misunderstand what Jesus said in Luke 4, and they think that what Jesus is actually uh, promising to do is, uh, are, are these things literally. So what, what they see in this text, they'll see words like the poor and the oppressed and the, uh, things like this, and they'll say that, well, Jesus, he's a political activist. Jesus came to, to show solidarity with the poor. Jesus is a social justice messiah. Jesus is a community organizer. He's a champion of the downtrodden and the poor and the oppressed. He's like Che Guevara, you know. He's like this, this, uh, this, this guy who came to be a social revolutionary. Now, Jesus is announcing his ministry priorities. That is what he's doing, but he's using a lot of words that have become buzzwords in like social justice circles, things like the poor, the captives, the oppressed. So if, if somebody were to hold that worldview, like a social justice mindset, and if they read this text while holding that, mind view, that worldview, it's easy to conclude that Jesus's primary concern is to show solidarity with a particular group of people, like a, a particular group of people who are suffering in this life in some way. But that, that isn't correct. Because that interpretation reads Marxist thought categories back into the Bible. So this social justice ideology under the influence of this Marxist thinking, it groups everybody into one of two categories. You're either an oppressor or you are the oppressed, one or the other. And so rather than seeing 
in people, rather than seeing sinners in need of a savior, social justice mindset people, they will see oppressed victims in need of liberation. And there's actually a name for this, and the name for this is liberation theology, where Jesus, he's a symbol for the oppressed. So according to this ideology, Jesus was a good man who was victimized by injustice, and he became an example of how corruption and evil systems can crush the weak. And so the gospel, according to liberation theology, is for people to see themselves as Jesus, to place themselves in the story as Jesus, where they are the innocent victims of evil and oppression. So there's not like a a personal responsibility for their sin. They're seeing sin localized elsewhere. Sin is is located in other people who are oppressing me, but there's not a sense of taking responsibility for one's own actions. So in a social justice liberation theology mindset, Jesus is not so much Savior and Lord. Jesus is a political tool. Jesus is a symbol of suffering and victimhood, and it's easy to relate to, because we can all relate to suffering. We can all relate to suffering unjustly, because it's part of our human experience. Now, in our circles, you know, like kind of reformed, baptistic kind of circles, you're not going to find a lot of people who openly subscribe to liberation theology. You're not going to have a class, you know, here and say, well, come and learn how about, all about how to do and understand liberation theology. That's that's not our game. It's, we, don't, we don't operate that way. But some of the thinking of liberation theology is very common in the world and in Christian circles. And there's a lot of books that have been published over the last few years that kind of take that approach without using that language. So people still agree with it. And so what they do is they take the Bible's concern for those who are poor, which the Bible is very concerned about the poor. And the Bible's concern for justice, which the Bible is very concerned for justice. And people who, who are suffering and God's compassion for them. It takes the Bible's concern for those things and it twists those into the primary mission of Jesus. Is to fix things right now and not when Jesus returns later, when, Jesus, when all things are made right. So these become mission priorities. We see that's what Jesus was here to do. Jesus is here saying, I'm here for the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed and the victims and the captives. I'm here to liberate them. I am your Messiah. And then those things become mission priorities for a church. And so whenever there is somebody suffering, whenever there's an injustice, like the church must do something about that because the church's mission is the same as Jesus' mission, which is to fix the world's problems politically. So what did Jesus mean then? Because he did use these words. So if, in these verses, if Jesus is announcing his ministry priorities, what are those ministry priorities? I want to show you something because it's helpful to visualize this. So we'll put a graphic on the screen. Can you see this? All right, so this is, um, this is the same verses, but I visualized a few things I want you to notice. The yellow highlighted the action that, that's, that's the action in the verses, and you can read it in your own Bible. You say, what are the verbs here? Um, there's the, the things that Jesus said he was sent to do, and all of these are speaking. Those are, they're verbs of proclaiming something. And then over here in the blue, those are the people who are the audience, the people who are hearing the message. 
So the action is, in, is a verbal action, and then the audience is indicated over here in, in blue. And we can leave that up there while, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep talking about this. So we have the, the, the repetition of to proclaim, to proclaim, to proclaim. That repetition emphasizes the verbal nature of Jesus' earthly ministry. So the focus of his ministry in the first coming, it's prophetic, right? He's, it's a speaking ministry. He's announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God in his own coming. And so in these two verses, almost all the action is verbal. The focus of Jesus' ministry is mostly preaching. And so the people that he lists here, the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed, these people are his primary audience. Now, if you take that literally, then what you're going to end up with is a social category or a, you know, a, a group of people that are materially poor or literally captive. So it's like, well, Jesus came to start a prison ministry and Jesus came to start a soup kitchen and uh, you know, things like this. It's like we, we, we read... Category, inappropriate categories into the text whenever these are meant to be visible, um, metaphorical ways of expressing a spiritual condition. So the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed, those are his primary audience, but not in the literal sense. Now, there's overlap. So it's, it's certainly Jesus cares about people in those conditions, but the point of his message is a spiritual message. Jesus didn't limit his ministry outreach. To poor captives, or to the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. So these people, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, those are words that describe an inner heart posture of repentant sinners who want to be freed from their sin. It's a spiritual ministry. So let me, let me get a little bit more specific. Let me just go through these four. First one, the poor. So don't misunderstand. God is very much concerned for the poor. I don't want you to hear that. I don't want you to hear anything else. God is clearly concerned for the poor, and Christians are certainly commanded to assist them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, um, in that text, Jesus said, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. So Matthew gives us um, a little bit more of the nuance that, that is being spoken here. What Jesus doesn't say is that being poor is going to get you into heaven, Right? Jesus doesn't say being poor gets you into heaven. He says the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. It's a heart posture. So he's saying that the kingdom of God belongs to people who have a, a heart posture of humility and contrition and dependence upon God. So material poverty does not make someone inherently virtuous. Being poor does not make somebody a better person. Poor people are sinners. Just like rich people and everybody else, everybody's sinners. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So poor people are sinners who need the gospel just like everyone else. So the poor people in view here are the humble poor, those who rely on God's provision in their poverty. And so Jesus ministered to people that are materially poor and materially rich. Now, he, he had dealt with the sinful impulses of each differently. So Jesus did not exclusively minister to the poor. Jesus, Jesus ministered to the poor and the rich. So he, he wasn't limiting himself. He would minister to everyone. He had poor and rich followers, but all of his followers, every one of them were poor in spirit because Jesus' ministry is to those who are humble and receptive to his message 
Now, there is an advantage for those who are in material poverty because they are already conditioned to be dependent. So there's already a needfulness. There's already a mindset of looking for help that makes those who are materially poor more open to the gospel sometimes, but also can make them hard, and hard of heart. If somebody just sees themselves as a victim of, of oppression and injustice, then there's a, they may be lacking the heart posture of humility. So you could have a person who is materially poor, but arrogant and proud and bitter and angry. So Jesus is talking about those who are poor, but he's using metaphorical language. All of his followers are poor in spirit, and that's, that's the point. Now, the next one is captives. Now, is Jesus talking about literal captives? Prison ministry? Is that, is that who? Did Jesus come and start a prison ministry? Well, there's no record of that. There's no record of Jesus liberating any captives. His own cousin, John the Baptist, you know, rotted away in prison and ended up getting his head cut off. Jesus didn't liberate him. Of all the people you might expect Jesus to want to liberate from captivity, it'd be his own cousin, John the Baptist, whom he said, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. But Jesus didn't liberate him. Why didn't he? Oh, because Jesus was busy about the work of liberating those in spiritual captivity who were in captivity to sin and that needed to be set free in the gospel. Now, what about the blind? What about healing blindness? Now, you might, you might think, okay, well, there's the one. You know, Jesus did heal the blind. Absolutely. Without a doubt, Jesus did heal the blind. But when he did heal the blind, he did not do so as a, you know, opening up an ophthalmology ministry. Jesus healed the blind as a demonstration of his power over spiritual blindness. It's a, it's a metaphorical thing that he was doing. So he did a physical manifestation of something to be able to demonstrate that he has the power and authority from God to heal the true, deeper spiritual blindness. Now, I could read you several texts, but I'll just limit myself to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. This is Paul writing, but he just said, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So blindness is a metaphor for the effects of sin on the mind and on the heart. So whenever Jesus healed physical blindness, there was, there was a meaning behind that. And the meaning behind that healing is to say, I can heal the true blindness that you are not aware of. You're not aware that you're blind in this way. Number four, the oppressed. So if you were to pull aside a Jew of the day, you know, any, any Jewish person living in the time of Jesus, and you ask them, what is the thing that's oppressing you? Who is oppressing you? What do you think they would say? The Romans. The dastardly Romans. These jerks that's oppressing us. So you would think, if this is Jesus' ministry priority, the Messiah will come and he will set the captives free and liberate the oppressed. He did nothing to actually liberate them from the oppression that they were very much aware of and felt. He didn't do anything. He did, Jesus did free those who were oppressed by sin, however. And we'll see, you'll see this next week. It's a doozy. Jesus healed those who were oppressed by demonic powers. He, he set them free. He did so with the power of his words. He spoke and the demons left. So the bottom line of, is this. At his first coming, Jesus' ministry is spiritual in nature. Now, there, I'm not denying that there is a physical component. 
because the way that as a church we bear witness to the kingdom oftentimes is through disaster relief. It is through caring for physical, tangible needs. But whenever those things eclipse the spiritual needs, then we've lost our way. The spiritual needs must come first because those are the things that nobody else can do. The Red Cross is not going to preach the gospel. And I love what you said, John. It's like they, they come and it's like, well, what do we do? Well, we're going to train them to preach the gospel. Now, we're going to meet a need. We're going to, we're going to do things that help people. But we do those things uh, you know, as, as a demonstration of the kingdom of God within us. So there, there is a measure to which we do enter into physical uh, ministries like this. That's a good thing, but those are good works. Good works are done by people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. So these are all the miracles that Jesus performed were physical and visible signs that, of, of his ministry in the unseen spiritual realm. That was a lengthy detour. So let's get back into the text. Verse 20. So Jesus just preached, or he just uh, read half a, half a, t- a text, right? So verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now this is dramatic, right? This is a dramatic moment. Luke adds a few nice little details here to savor the moment. Now the typical practice was that they would stand to read the scripture and then they would take a seat and preach uh, a a sermon about it. So Jesus went and took a seat. He had stood to read the text, but now he went back to his seat. So everybody's looking at him. They're expecting, okay, there's going to be a sermon now. Jesus is going to have something to say. So what's he going to say? Jesus, what do you have to say about what you just read? Well, verse 21, and he began to say to them, get this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a bombshell, right? That's huge. It's like, what? You're saying that you're the anointed one and the spirit of God is upon you and you're here to, to do all these cool things? They've been waiting for seven centuries for the Messiah to come. Anticipation. It's over. The waiting is over. It's fulfilled. Jesus is here. He says, in your hearing. I mean, that's a direct claim to be the Messiah. This is fulfilled in your hearing by my voice. So Jesus is self-consciously aware of who he is and what he came to do. And he's clearly setting forth his mission, his ministry goals. But they don't understand it just yet. They don't understand what he means, and we'll see that by the fact that they try to throw him off a cliff about five minutes later. <laughs> so, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I can just imagine these little old ladies, I'm like, oh, Joseph's baby's all grown up. He's now the Messiah who knew. (laughs) It's so cute. I mean, they're just so excited. They're proud of Jesus. He's going to go do great things. They can't wait to see it. Jesus is going to put Nazareth on the map. You know, I'm I'm sure they're just imagining someday they're going to have a road sign on the way into Nazareth. It's like Nazareth, population 57, uh, but birthplace of the Messiah, you know, the hometown of Jesus Christ, you know, and they got the positive vibes flowing, the website's been created, the t-shirts are printed, and then Jesus ruins everybody's good mood with what he says next. Verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. 
And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, this may not be obvious to us, but Jesus just offended everybody in the room. He ruined the good vibes and the positive feelings by saying something that would have been incredibly insulting to them. And so basically what he's telling them is that all your positive words are disingenuous. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Your minds are on the things of man, not on the things of God. You're excited because you don't know why I'm here. You don't understand my ministry. You think I'm here to give you free things, to make your life easier, to heal people, to get people out of jail. You, you're, you, you're misunderstanding why I'm here. So you're excited because you heard about some miracles that I did at Capernaum, and so you came here thinking I'm going to repeat the magic show. It's just Jesus' magical mystery tour. He's just going around and, and doing really cool stuff. And so he's telling him, you're motivated by self-interest and curiosity, but your heart is not in the right place. You're here for the wrong reason. So we have this saying, um, familiarity breeds contempt. It's kind of biblical. You know? uh, that, that statement was first used, I had to Google this. Jeffrey Chaucer in the 1300s is where that saying comes from, familiarity breeds contempt. But basically it means that human beings are easily bored with the familiar and we're easily enticed and excited by novelty. And so like, if you know somebody, they grew up with them, it's like you just get kind of bored with the hometown guy. And you're, but you're kind of drawn to this new, flashy, exciting thing that is unfamiliar to you. And we can do the same thing with Jesus. We, we can get so familiar with Jesus, we get kind of bored with him. It's like, you know, it's, if, if, if somebody has some new, new novel idea, some new twist, you know, I want to reimagine Jesus in this or that way, you know, that can sell some books. That can be exciting. But, um, you know, C.S. Lewis has this thing uh, in Screwtape Letters, where the demon, he, like one demon is writing a letter to another demon saying, like, here's what you need to do. You need to get your patient to fear the dread of the same old thing. You know? or, or as they say where I grew up, the old time religion. You know, just like, just, you want to make them afraid of this, the boredom and the monotony of the familiar. That's how you know in your heart that Jesus has become a sideshow and not the main attraction is when you're bored with him. He became too familiar. So if, and if you get to a point in your Christian life where you stop growing, you stop maturing, where you stagnate and atrophy, you can end up bored with Jesus. You know, I think that's why a lot of, you know, deconstructing your faith, um, ex-evangelical, this phenomena that has been going on the last few years especially, I think the, the, the issue there is people just got bored with Jesus. The gospel isn't beautiful to them. It doesn't excite them anymore because they want something more. I'm like, really, all I get is forgiveness of my sins, but I don't get, you know, uh, you know, liberty for captives and freedom for the oppressed and sight, but I don't get all these cool things too. And like, yeah, is, is that not enough? You know, is forgiveness of sins and eternal life, is that not good enough for us? We can get bored with that. So if you only want a Messiah who takes all your problems away in this life, then you're going to get bored with him when he doesn't do it. Well, he keeps going. The insults roll on. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, 
And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What's that history lesson here all about? Well, he's, he's just said that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, and he's going to give them two Old Testament examples where God's people rejected their own prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So 1 Kings 17, Elijah was rejected by his own people, so God sent him away to a Gentile city, that's key, a Gentile city of Zarephath to minister to a widow. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, Elisha was a prophet who was rejected by uh, God's people. And so God led him to a Gentile man, uh, and he healed Naaman of Syria. So there's a pattern here, and Jesus is saying, hey, this has happened a couple times before. Once in 1 Kings, once in 2 Kings, once here in Luke 4. The pattern is this. When the Jews reject God's prophet, God's anointed one, God rebukes them by sending them to the Gentiles. God rebukes God's people by sending the prophets to the Gentiles. So whenever Jesus pointed this out, that was, that was a step too far. You, you, you can't do that because who are the Gentiles? Well, that's the Romans for one, but it's pretty much everybody that we hate. These are the Gentiles. These are the people that are holding us down and that and that are keeping us back and are oppressing us and making life miserable for us. And you want to send us to those, you're, you're going to go to those people? You're our Messiah. Well, in fact, maybe you're not. We don't want any part of that kind of Messiah. We, don't, we want a Messiah that gives us, you know, the second coming kind of Messiah, the Isaiah 61 stuff now, where you're treading on our enemies, where you're wiping them out, and you're giving us, you're rebuilding the ancient ruins, and these things are beautiful and wonderful. Life is pleasant and rosy again. That's the Messiah we want. But we don't want this kind of Messiah that, that you're talking about here where you're going to go and you're going to preach to Gentiles and, and welcome them. So that, that triggers a radical response. Now, verse 28. When they heard these things, watch out. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town, not in a car. They like, like, literally, they were like chasing him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> when you're Jesus, you could just pass through their midst and go away when people are trying to kill you. But that's what happened. I mean, he, he, I mean there, the implication there is there was a miraculous thing that Jesus did in verse 30. So these statements made them furious. So after Jesus preached in church, they wanted to kill him. And there's, there's probably a lesson there for ministry, but we'll, we'll save that for another time. But why were they so offended by Jesus? Basically, Jesus wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Jesus knew that, and it didn't take much to expose the fact. What they wanted was a second coming Messiah where God would crush their enemies and give them a life of ease and prosperity. What they got was a first coming Messiah where God's grace is so grand and glorious that it includes even the Gentiles. So they weren't having it. Jesus' rejection by his hometown crowd in Nazareth foreshadows his later rejection by his own people in Jerusalem when he went to the cross. And that's the pattern in Scripture. God's people reject his prophets and God sends them to the Gentiles. We see this all over the New Testament. Paul deals with this a ton 
Read Romans 9 through 11. It's this, this grappling with the fact that God's gospel, the good news, has gone to the people that you wouldn't have expected. Of course, if they really knew their Bibles and the Old Testament, they would have seen that because that's all over the book of Isaiah too. They just didn't want to see it. But God's heart has always been to include every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's always been God's heart. I'll read you one example from John chapter 1, verse 11. It says, uh, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So there's the rejection of his own people. But to all who did receive him, including the Gentiles, who believed in his name, that's how you receive him. You believe in his name. You become a follower. He gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. It's not a blood thing, a flesh and blood family thing, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Not that kind of birth, but rebirth, being born of God, being born of the Spirit. That means the Gentiles, if they believe, they're in. It's that simple. And that's us, right? Unless, you, unless your last name is Levine or some Jewish name, we're all Gentiles, right? That means all of us, we are the beneficiaries of this blessing because we are welcomed in. We're brought in. When Jesus was rejected by his own people in his own hometown, that paves the way for us to enter in. Now, I'm just about out of time, so I have one application point, and it's the simplest and really the best kind of application point we could have. And that is simply to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah that you need. Jesus is the Messiah you need, and he's made a way for you to come in, to humble yourself, to become poor in spirit. And so you can either welcome him in, or you can reject him, but you can't stay neutral. It's going to be one or the other. And I'm aware that there's, there's a number of people that attend this church regularly. So you're here frequently, and, and you like it here. Why wouldn't you? There's nice people, friendly, uh, free coffee, free coffee mode even, if you want one. Uh, thank you, brother. Good teaching. <laughs> I was going to say good music and uh, uh, maybe a, a sermon that can keep you alert and awake uh, for a few minutes. But yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, sure, it's fine. This would be a, this would be a, a good place to spend 90 minutes of your of your week. But but some of you that that do those things, you hesitate to to fully commit to Christ. And so there are people in this room that have not yet committed your life to Jesus. And so you're you're kind of like the people listening to this sermon. Jesus is living in the synagogue, and you know maybe there's a part that you like at first. You're like, I like this, but then you hear something you don't like, and you're like, Wait a minute, I don't like that. But you don't get to choose. Jesus doesn't bend to become whatever kind of Messiah we prefer. Jesus is who he is, and we have to receive him as he is. So you hesitate to fully commit to Jesus, and you, but the thing is you can't stay neutral. So you're here in church, right? This is Jesus' turf. It's kind of like you're in Jesus' hometown. So if you do not fully receive him and commit your life to him, then the choice is to reject him. Now, whether or not you actually say, I reject Jesus, even if you try to remain neutral, that's a form of rejection because there's no, there's no middle ground. Now, remember the last thing that Jesus quoted in, in, uh, when he's reading Isaiah? He said that the last thing where he stopped reading was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's a that's, that's, a, that's a metaphorical way of speaking about the gospel, of, of, the, of, a, of a season of ingathering, a season of grace. God's favor has been extended to the world. 
And there's an opportunity for people to respond to God's favor. I want to read you one text about this that's relevant. It's 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. This is where Paul is urging us to commit to Christ. And he says, for he says, in a favorable time, which is right now, Jesus brings the year of the Lord's favor. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So listen to me. Jesus is the Messiah that you've been looking for. He's who you need, even if you didn't realize it. Even though you may not have been looking for him and you didn't know that you needed him, he is who you need. Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not a tool. Jesus is the end. He is who we get. He is life. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He's everything. So right now, we are living between these two times, between the first coming and the second coming. The first time, he extends his offer of grace and forgiveness and says, you can come and be a part of this. You can be welcomed in. The Lord's favor is extended to you. You can repent and believe the gospel and find hope and life in Christ. And the second coming, when there will be no more evangelism, there will be no more opportunities to repent. And if you do not know Jesus at that time, then you're condemned forever. Now, people say, well, that's mean, cruel, hellfire, brimstone, judgmental preaching. No, that's what Jesus himself said. That is his gospel. That is his message. And so this grace is being offered to each of us. None of us here is better than anybody else. We're not, we're not, there's not this pecking order where some are, are righteous and they don't really need God's grace. We all come to Jesus the same way. We become to him poor in spirit, humble, contrite, acknowledging our desperate need for him. And so now this season of ingathering, it's an opportunity to be forgiven. It's an opportunity to take advantage of what he's provided for us. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, listen to me. The fact that you are here at all listening to this message means that God has extended his favor to you. It's an invitation because you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed this day. You're hearing an offer of eternal life being extended right now, and you're being called to believe right now. That's the purpose of his coming. These are his ministry priorities. In Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is, is on me, and he has anointed me to proclaim all of the magnificent blessings of God to those who receive him with the proper heart, humbling themselves, confessing their sins, saying, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own, and receiving his offer of grace. And those who receive it have been given the right to become children of God, not, not children of God in the way that everybody was born naturally, but born of the Spirit, to be born again, to be renewed, to have the life of God within you. So if you've not committed your life to Christ, please hear this as a loving, pastoral, gentle pleading. Why not today? I appeal to you, do it today, do it now. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we give you all praise and glory, and we worship and honor your name as the Messiah that we need, the Messiah who has come, the Messiah that you've sent to us, to save us from our sin. And our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you as we come to the table, we celebrate the cost of purchasing our salvation and also the life that lives within us because we 
eat the bread and drink the cup, we are feasting on the life of Christ. Lord, I pray for any who, who don't know you personally and they haven't, they haven't committed their lives to you, Lord, I pray that you will lead them to faith now. Preach the truth of the gospel into their hearts by your spirit right now. And Lord, may today be the day of salvation. I pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com. 